Hey everybody, this is Armando Torres, and you're listening to the show before the show. And I'm Paige Wesley. And with us we have... Robert Timothy. Yay! Woohoo! We have got a great episode for you this week, uh, and I know this seems counterproductive to what I just said, but it's just a fair warning. We do have a trigger warning on this one. Yes, there will be some discussion later in the episode on sexual assault and rape. And also some triggering accounts of people not believing survivors of sexual assault. So if that is going to affect you negatively, heads up. That's something that will be discussed later in the episode. Just wanted to give everyone a warning. Uh, But the episode is still really fun. An absolute batshit crazy ending to this wild series that I'm so glad Paige was able to cover. Uh, because discovering more and more about the story each week is has been a delight and just an absolute mind fuck uh, constantly. And thank you so much to Bobby for coming on and guesting on this. You have been absolutely amazing. Uh, go check out Bobby's podcast called Science Faction. Thank you guys for having me, and thank for you for all you audience members who have been coming over and listening to Science Faction. We love having you guys. Welcome. We will we will meld our families together like a podcast <laughs> Brady Bunch. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone, go go go! Subscribe to Science Faction, and then leave a comment calling Bobby a fucking nerd. Woo! <laughs> uh, got him. We have a uh, Patreon. Go to Patreon.com/slash Colt Podcast. You can also listen to the show on Rooster Teeth, uh, Cockadoodle Do that please (laughs) they hate it every time we do it uh you can download the app on your amazon fire stick roku television xbox or your mobile device or you can go to roosterteeth.com and i think that does it without any further ado let's get into this wild ass episode hello 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 For the purposes of this podcast, we define a cult as organizations that rally behind an entity or leader who espouse beliefs outside the norm, organizations that require physical or monetary sacrifice as a condition of membership, organizations in which the doctrines followed by the leaders are different than that of the followers, organizations in which isolation is encouraged either by commune living or by a policy of disconnection from outside relationships, and organizations that actively recruit new members. All cults might have some or all of these traits, and as always, these are our opinions. Thank you for tuning into Cult Podcast. I'm Paige Wesley. And I'm Armando Torres. And with us we have... Robert Timothy. Yay! <laughs> it is week four of our coverage of the SLA and Patty Hearst's abduction. Now, before we dive into this week... Bobby, you got some questions from listeners after last week. I did. Uh, first of all, this has been so much fun. I cannot wait to see how this train wreck ends in the fourth <laughs> episode. But it's even, even more fun like off the air because a bunch of your cult podcast listeners have migrated over to Science Faction, and uh, we can tell that from the numbers, and also because they're fantastic fans, and so they immediately started asking questions and stuff. We love you guys. Welcome to Science Faction when you guys come on over. <laughs> One of the ones that I got, which I, I got a few science questions which were related to my show but one of the ones that i got that was related to this show that i thought was a great question i actually went and did some research on it was we talked about willie wolf you guys remember him right the archaeology student Mm -hmm. yeah that's not related to willy wonka right no not at all no that's not how relation works that's the first name not the last Ah. (laughs) yeah uh, uh so 
we talked about how he was an archaeology student, but he got involved in all of this with this prison program, right, where they were going into prisons and working with prisoners. And somebody brought up a really good point where they're like, wait, is he an archaeology student? Why is he in prison? How do those two things mesh up at all? And that's a absolutely fantastic question. Uh, as somebody who, you know, did that archaeology program, a lot of the older archaeology programs in places like Berkeley, they're actually, you don't get a degree in archaeology, you get your degree in anthropology. Archaeology is one branch of it. And so the other ones being the other, there's three main branches to, to anthropology, archaeology, sociocultural uh, anthropology, and physical anthropology. But there's also a fourth branch, which is sometimes included, called linguistics. And he actually got involved because of the linguistics branch. So he was working towards his major, but he was involved in the linguistics branch. And there was a professor at Berkeley called Colston Westbrook, who uh, taught an African-American linguistics class. And that led him into that prison program issue. By the way, there's a bunch of... Um, Somewhat conspiracy theories, somewhat maybe well-based stuff about Colton Westbrook uh, basically being funded by the CIA for a long time. And oh. so, and, and uh, some conspiracy theories about what that means with the SLA founding and whatnot. But long story short, uh, the reason you would have an archaeologist, so to speak, going into prisons to go talk to like underserved communities and stuff is because anthropology itself is a wide branching subject. And to get that archaeology degree, you have to take these other classes as well. I actually have some insight into this. So I went to UC Irvine mm -hmm. for my first couple of years and then finished at UCLA. And I was a humanities student, which is where anthropology fell under humanities at UC sure. Irvine. And so linguistics was our math option. So like hmm. for the people who are bad at math, but still like studying anthropology stuff, they would put you in the linguistics department, which is not easy, by the way. I failed it twice, but like... That's a weird math, though. Yeah. I should have just taken stats. Yeah. For the amount of stats that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, I should have just taken stats. If anyway. I wanted my math to have language in it, I would have taken algebra, okay? <laughs> okay. I think uh, everybody should take stats, by the way. I think regardless I of what, what you're going to do in life, it's the most... Like, they have a, a calculus and pre-calculus track in high school. Screw that. Go stats. It's so much more useful Fucking absolutely because it's one of those things i've had to <laughs> i've had to go back and learn stats as an adult like yeah. outside of college never once have i used algebra stats mm -hmm. all the damn time absolutely constantly anyway i don't want to feel left out here because i also have some insight into archaeology because i've used a whip and a hat before <laughs> Also, I've seen Indiana Jones, and if that's anything like real archaeology, archaeologists should all belong in jail. Yes. <laughs> if it was, you would go to jail because he just he wasn't so much an archaeologist as he was a looter and antiquities thief. So Yeah, grave robber. Yeah. Grave robber. A grave robber with questionable relationships. <laughs> yes. I was a child, Indiana. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. That's Raiders of the Lost Ark. That yeah. is a quote. From the film. We named the dog Indiana. <laughs> we named the dog Indiana. <laughs> and you were quite a dog Indiana. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Anyway, thank you. W was there another one or just that one? Uh, that There was a few uh, that were based around science and stuff. But in terms of the SLA one, that was the main one. I thought it was a great question because yeah. in reality, yeah, why, if you just think about it on the surface, why would an archaeology student be in the jail? That makes sense. That uh, Here's the terrible thing. I know that when I was in college, there were any number of like excursions or things that I went on where I was like, I'm not even in this class, but <laughs> I wanted to go. And so I did not question <laughs> him going to jail. I was like, yeah, of course, man. Something to do. 
<laughs> like, don't worry about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, it's also a good question because it depends on where you come from. It could be from a very uh, college background. Like I, I'm an instructor at a nearby university in the summer and that particular university, they have archaeology as a separate degree program. So this would not yeah. necessarily be the case in that one. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mostly went to prison because my dad was there. <laughs> so, you know, we all have reasons. We all got reasons. It's fine. It's, it's fine. It's not that he was actually a prisoner. He was just a Berkeley student who was yeah. trying to get his archaeology degree. <laughs> exactly. All right. So let me get into sources right out of the gate, and then we'll talk about A, where we left off, and B, a little bit of a disclaimer for the rest of the episode, because this is going to come with both a trigger warning and just a heads up about a couple things. So as we have been, uh, we are... In part, pulling from the CNN documentary series, The Radical Story of Patty Hearst, as well as articles from Britannica and PBS written for the rise and fall of the Symbionese Liberation Army. We have BlackPass.org, the Symbionese Liberation Army, written by Weston W. Cooper. We have FBI government files on Patricia Campbell Hearst. In this case, we also have FBI files on Wendy Yoshimura. We'll get into her in a little bit. Uh, We have a Slate article from 2002, What is the Symbionese Liberation Army? That article is going to come in a lot for this episode because we will get to 2002 by the end of this episode. We then also have the dissertation by Gregory Garth Cumming of UC Riverside. (laughs) The end of an era, the rise of the Symbion... What? Paige, it's because it sounds like Cumming. I know it does, Armando. No, it's a very nuanced joke. I wish this joke. man's name was anything else. I just don't understand why Paige isn't getting this joke. I get, I get it. I wrote this paper. My name is Garth Nut. <laughs> First of all, Gregory. Garth is his middle name. Gregory Garth Cumming. The end of an era, the rise of the Symbionese Liberation Army, and the fall of the New Left. My, my name is Greg Nut. <laughs> Greg Nutt is a funnier name. My new, my middle name, my new middle name is Bust. <laughs> I don't. Greg Bust Nut. Greg Bust Nut. Uh. Mondo make podcast. Greg Bust Nut. We all have jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, Please continue. Good lord. Uh, we have, uh, we have uh, finally, People Magazine, an article from April 29th, 1974, The Man and the Mystery Behind the SLA Terror. So, where did we leave off and where are we going? First and foremost, I just want to say, there is a bit of a trigger warning because towards the end of this episode, we are going to get into Patricia Hearst's trials, plural, Um, and unfortunately, uh, the trial very much becomes about whether or not they believe her rape was legitimate. And that can be, I'm sure, very triggering for someone who has survived sexual assault and maybe was not believed. Just giving you a heads up on that. Secondly, uh, Patricia Hurst is going to do some pretty terrible shit in this episode. Uh, she is not an easy person to empathize or be compassionate towards after what you find out. And I do want everyone to remember that she was kidnapped, which is if you are watching the CNN documentary, uh, I will say that same trigger warning applies for the last two episodes. But also that documentary was made about six years ago, uh, largely by Jeffrey Tubin, who is now famous for jerking off on a zoom call. (laughs) So fuck that guy. But also 
the documentary, while very useful earlier in the case because you get a lot of insight from people who were there, in the latter part of the documentary, it's very obvious who is not there and whose stories are not being included because it definitely takes on a narrative of Patricia Hearst is faking it to get out of jail. And while there are going to be things in this episode that are troubling and scary and bad decisions and there could be an argument there there are some things that she needs to take some responsibility for and we will talk about how she does that later the fact still remains that she was kidnapped and we'll come back to it when we get to her trial but I really kind of compare her to someone like a Marty Rathburn from Scientology in Scientology he did some heinous shit and now has come out and been like It wasn't cool of me to do that heinous shit. And Patricia has kind of done some of the same, but with a little bit of a different tone. And I think that's part of why she is approached a little bit differently. And also she did it 20 years before when people didn't understand a lot of stuff about cults. Yeah. So if, as we get through this episode, you find yourself thinking, holy shit, maybe she is the villain. We'll talk about it. But also number two, if you get to a point where you're like, why are people treating her like this was all her plan we'll talk about that too yeah because a lot of it is the politics of the time i also thought it was very controversial of them to try her as an archaeologist i just (laughs) (laughs) that's a little much she belongs in a museum (laughs) Um, yeah we we only function under what's called bone law uh, (laughs) bone law everything works differently in bone law bone law sounds like a sex judge well (laughs) you know what it actually intersects at that point yeah Oh my god, that was the minor that that Greg <laughs> Nutt took in college. Was was bone law. Bone law. Hi, I'm Greg Nutt, professor of bone law. <laughs> oh god. Okay, we gotta get we gotta get to this episode. Like the actual episode. Yeah. Okay. So when we left off, she, Patricia Hurst, uh, and Bill and Emily Harris, now the only remaining members of the SLA watched on TV from a motel room in Anaheim as the rest of the SLA died in a hail of bullets. And they are immediately despondent. They think it's their fault because they drew attention to them with the shooting at the sporting goods store and forgetting that parking ticket. Remember that they were going to try and pay a parking ticket? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> on a stolen car. On a stolen car. While on the run for murder. Yeah. For murder. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And kidnapping, by the way. Mm -hmm. Now, a little info about that shootout. The LAPD and the FBI fired approximately 5,300 rounds. The SLA fired 4,000 rounds. Jesus. (gasps) To put that into perspective, law enforcement outnumbered the SLA at least 20 to 1. And on average, each member of law enforcement fired 50 to 60 rounds but each member of the SLA fired 700 to 800 rounds. Jesus wow. Christ. And when they raided the house, it was full of pipe bombs. It was also full of dead bodies that people didn't recognize because of the fire. And so they don't know if Patty is alive or dead at this point. And it actually will take them weeks to actually confirm it. And before they even can... She talks to the press again. So 
at, at a certain point, they're like, it's moot. Because <laughs> she's clearly on TV. Fucking 700 rounds a person. Yes, a person. God per person. damn. That's like they were trying to leave artifacts. They were, <laughs> <laughs> that's what those bullets are. Now, keep in mind, though, now this could kind of like uh, tamp that down a little bit, that surprise. That's, that's a really impressive number. But still, if you think about it, I think uh, I read that they had modified some M1 yes. carbines to go fully auto. And if you have a modified fully auto gun, you can shoot those 700 rounds in like a minute. And so like yes. that's that's not necessary. I mean, it'll be a little bit over a minute, I think, but uh, depending on how you modified it. But but a fully automatic weapon gets rid of ammo real fast. This fucking nerd doing gun math. <laughs> But that is also how they can tell who fired what. Yeah. Because they were able to look at casings and and mm. things that they found and they could differentiate them between who was firing what gun. So that's how we know those numbers. I was right. doing a bit, but they straight up did leave artifacts. Yeah. Yeah, they did. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, it's not awesome. It's really bad, but I mean, if we want to get technical about it, you got to give it 50 years before it becomes historic. So if they're still there now, we are we are almost at the historic period. That's crazy. You heard it here, 56 in Compton, if you find a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, scratch that. You're going to find bullets. Yeah, you, can't, you can't guarantee that they're from this. For sure, bullets are already there. I think the real takeaway is that if you leave something somewhere for 50 years, it becomes a historic artifact. That's why I have vintage Pyrex. <laughs> it doesn't mean it automatically is, but it can. And in this case, it actually probably would because it, uh, one of the it's categories. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the categories of historical significance and this would be a big one so i actually yeah if you found like a you know 762 round embedded somewhere in your house two houses over and found out it was from there yeah you might get a nosy ass archaeologist up in there trying to make sure you don't tear down that house <laughs> this is just bobby warning you that he's gonna come up in there and try and tear down your house yeah eminent <laughs> domain bitches bobby goes to south central and goes who's got bullets <laughs> and they're like all of us for you white boy okay so Bill says that this is the worst day of his life, including Vietnam, watching his friends die, essentially. Oh, my God. Yeah. And according to him, this event galvanizes Patricia, and she wants to avenge Willie Wolf's death. Keep that in mind. We're going to talk about it again later when we get to her trial. Once the investigation discovers that Patricia's not in the house... She's now hunted as an armed and dangerous fugitive, which, like, I get why that would happen. <laughs> like, I, I know she's kidnapped, and this is complicated, but she has also fired a gun at the front of a building, and she is on the run with people who have committed some terrorist acts, essentially, at this point. Yeah. So, they are in Los Angeles. They wait till Memorial Day, about a week after this happens and they make their way back to Los Angeles because they figure that the Memorial Day traffic will hide them and they're right hmm. they actually seem to disappear for a little bit and they make their way up to Berkeley they literally drive until their car dies but they're only a block or so away from people they know from back when they used to do work in San Francisco they arrive there moments after the FBI finishes searching the house. Whoa. So the FBI at this point, after the shootout, after the sporting goods store shootout, they're out there looking for any clue as to where they are. 
So they've started going to literally every friend they can identify that these people have and executing search warrants. So they execute a search warrant, they leave, and literally minutes later, these three roll up. And the people in that house were so pissed that they had had to deal with the FBI. They were like, absolutely, here's money. Fuck the FBI. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I thought you were going to say, like, they were so pissed they raised their hand. They're like, FBI agents, FBI agents, come back. No, at this point, especially because everyone had watched what had happened in Los Angeles on TV the day before or a a couple weeks before at this point. And it's a lot like Waco where... Even though you're like, okay, the Branch Davidians are not good. Like, David Koresh is not a good guy. He's taking child brides. It's real dark up in there. But also, the government shouldn't run over people with tanks. Like, you know, like, it's It's, that. There's a subtle middle ground in there. (laughs) Yes. And so a lot of people feel the same about this group, even though Pipe Bombs and Donald DeFreeze, I... I would say, here's the thing. Again, the government shouldn't just mow people down willy-nilly. But I do think in this case, they were doing it out of an abundance of caution. They were worried he might blow that house up. Yeah, and an abundance of bullets. And an abundance (laughs) of bullets. And remember, the SLA fires first. We have it on video. We know they did. But a lot of people are looking at this as the government torching a house full of hippies alive. Yeah, That's what they think this is. And so a lot of people are kind of willing to help them because of that. But here's the problem. The FBI and the LAPD more specifically, after torching that house, has no more leads. Because unlike the SLA, they know how to burn a house down. (laughs) And so this is the one time that a house burns down and it doesn't leave a paper trail because it's destroyed. And so... That basically gives the remaining SLA, Bill, Emily, and Patricia, a head start because nobody knows where they're going. God. Yeah. So their friends give them cash and it's only enough cash for them to take public transit to Oakland where they have somebody who set them up with a new apartment and a new car. So they load all of their guns into a shopping bag and ride the Muni to Oakland. So they're on public fucking transit with a bag of automatic weapons. Cool. But to be fair, you're in Oakland and that's like 50% of the people on public transit. So I mean, depending on what part of Oakland you're in. Yeah, maybe. Uh, But it, I mean, but imagine getting on a bus and people have like giant shopping bags just full of AKs. That's yeah. what this is. And you're just like, Shouldn't you carjack somebody? You have guns. <laughs> They're sticking out like baguettes and it's a fucking Disney cartoon. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh my God. This is so stupid. I I do love how the entire, this this section of the story is just people uniting over like, fuck the police, fuck the FBI. I know, this, I hate to do like a small little tangent, but I have a bad tendency where if I see... Uh, this is a specific type of police officer. If I see parking enforcement giving somebody a ticket, <laughs> I'll roll down my window and I'll just yell, fuck you, fuck parking enforcement. And then I'll just like Amazing. drive away. 
And the other day, I was trying to do it before driving over to my building, and uh, I saw somebody getting a ticket, and I rolled down my window, and I went, fuck you, fuck parking enforcement. But then before I could make the turn, somebody got in front of me, and then the light went red, and I'm just- And then you were stuck there? I'm just <laughs> sitting there in my fucking car with the windows down, and the parking enforcement guy looks over me, and he's very angry, and he goes, what did you say? And I had a second to like rethink what I was saying, and I just went- you know what? Yeah, no, fuck you. Fuck parking enforcement. And then he just had this sad look on his face. He went, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then just went and writing a ticket. But that's like every time I see somebody getting a ticket or something, I'm just like, ah, fuck you. Well, and, and this kind of becomes the SLA's new rallying cry. We'll get into it in a little bit, but they go from anti-fascism mm-hmm. to specifically anti-law enforcement. Mm. Because of of the events in Los Angeles. We'll go over it a little bit more in in a bit. Meanwhile, as they're making their way to their new apartment in Oakland, in Berkeley, on campus, there are now rallies in favor of the SLA because of the events that happened in Los Angeles. So everyone saw the house burn down, and now there's rallies against the police for the SLA because of that. They're led by a woman named Kathy Salia, who was a friend of Angela Atwood, who died in that fire. The remaining SLA members connect with her, and she brings along her sister Josephine and her brother Steve and her boyfriend at the time, a man named Jim Kilgore. And they start raising money for the SLA and kind of become de facto members. So now the SLA is back to being a larger organization but now it's all white people. <laughs> I mean, before, wasn't it all white people except like one dude? Except for Donald DeFries. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Well, you know what I got to say, though, is there is something kind of insidious about these people because these people all joined up after they're like, oh, you assassinated a school board president for asking yeah. for student IDs. Oh, you don't like you kidnapped, you kidnapped somebody like yes. this is eyes wide open agreeing yes. to go into this. And that's what's kind of gross about this. Right. So at this point, Bill, Emily and Patricia are exhausted. They've been on the run for a couple of weeks. And what they tell these new kind of SLA members is they only want one thing. They want to memorialize their six dead comrades. So they send a communique that is effectively a eulogy. And Patricia is the one who reads it. And she talks specifically about Willie Wolf. And about her, quote unquote, her feelings for Willie Wolf. And this is what really turns the tide in the media against her. If you didn't think she was, quote unquote, a bad egg before, this is what a lot of people cite as the moment. It's because it's her saying, you murdered my friends. Yeah. Like, I could... Leave at any time, but I'm not going to. You murdered my friends. So she signs off, and that's the last communique they send pretty much ever because they basically go underground at this point. So Kathy, Salia from Berkeley, sets them up with a man named Jack Scott and his wife, Mickey. Now, Jack is a sports editor and columnist, and he wants to write a book about them. So that's his kind of motivation for getting them help. He wants to write a book as the events are transpiring, right? Yes. He wants he wants to like 
he wants to almost famous the SLA, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's crazy to, to see that this kind of mentality has always been around. Always. So he tells the SLA that he has resources to transport them out of state, but they would need to ditch their firearms. And they argue about it, but eventually agree. <laughs> so he enlists his parents to transport them across country. Oh Mainly, God. his parents are responsible for transporting Patricia. And they get Patricia apart from Bill and Emily. Bill and Emily are transported separately. And his father says to Patricia, I will drive you wherever you want. You do not have to go with them. I don't know or care what has happened, but I will take you wherever you want to be taken. According to him, she says, quote, get the fuck on the road and start driving. <laughs> She's gotten snappy in her captivity, yeah. hasn't she? She sounds like the average Lyft user, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we'll, I want to talk a, at length, I would say, about her mental state once we get to the, the trial. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, there's going to be a lot of stuff like this where you're just like, is, is she still a captive? Like, can, can we still consider her a victim at this point? We'll talk about it a lot later. Anyway, a few days later, she shows up in New York and meets up with Bill and Emily And they find a farmhouse for them just outside of Scranton, Pennsylvania. It was Shroot Farms. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, it's it's Shroot Farms. And they put her there along with another woman that they have kind of spirited away from the Bay Area who was wanted in San Francisco and Berkeley. Her name is Wendy Yoshimura. Now, Wendy Yoshimura is a watercolor painter And she grew up in Manzanar, one of the largest Japanese internment camps in California during World War II. Oh, my God. After the war, her family actually moved to Japan. They they lived on a small island off the coast of Hiroshima. And her father actually worked with American forces there. They then returned to the U.S. when she was about 13 years old. And she has to learn to speak English at that point. But she ends up graduating from the California College of Arts in 1969. And at that time, she becomes involved with something called the Revolutionary Army. It's a lot like the SLA. We just don't have as much information about it because they get caught a lot faster. But it's a group of activists founded by the man who was her boyfriend at the time named Willie Brandt. And they were notable for claiming responsibility for violent actions. Now, they didn't necessarily do all the violent actions. <laughs> they were they posers. Did, they weren't really. They did, they did want to claim responsibility uh, because they wanted to express opposition to the Vietnam War. And at first, it seemed like they were mostly all talk. But then they set off a small bomb. <laughs> so the police start looking for them. And in 1972, the police discover basically a garage full of weapons and explosives that had been rented by Wendy. And they described it as, quote, a massive bomb factory. They also find essentially written plans for future bombings for the UC Berkeley campus, Mm -hmm. um, specifically the Naval Architecture Building, and a plan to kidnap the World Bank president, and former Defense Secretary Robert McNamara 
at his house in Aspen. <laughs> so they were dreaming big. Yeah, and all of this stuff is getting Donald DeFreeze just rock fucking hard. Well, he's dead, so. Oh, fuck, that's right. Well, then that was the rigor mortis. I, I kind of wanted to hear what would happen if they actually tried that, though, given what happened, like, given how Keystone cops it was when they tried to kidnap Patty Hearst. And Patty Hearst didn't have any security. Could you imagine, like, the Secretary of Defense, what would happen if these bumbling idiots tried to kidnap him? Oh, my God. Well, we'll never. Yeah. I mean, we'll never find out because they were arrested in Berkeley <laughs> in 1972 and convicted almost immediately because they had left so much evidence <laughs> rookies you got to get the police to set your house on fire idiots <laughs> yeah idiots now wendy evaded the police and fled california and that's where she ends up on the east coast with the sla and she and patty become friends now the police don't know that wendy and the sla have now kind of joined forces but they did have some tips that wendy was on the east coast and that's going to come into play a little bit later However, Jack, the guy who helped hide them, is running out of money to support them. Because remember, they're not bringing in any money. The only thing they really have are donations, but people don't know where they are and don't really know if they're still alive or anything. So they're not getting a lot of donations. Man, would they have loved Venmo back then. Oh, my God. It would have changed their world. They would have been around forever. Yeah, they would have done a fucking Kickstarter. (laughs) They started their... They started their own website called Only Felons. <laughs> Honestly, though, this is not a joke. Venmo would have changed this story like so drastically. And it'll come into play a lot later. But yes, I'm sending you $20 bomb emoji, Robert McNamara emoji. <laughs> so Jack is like, yo, we need some money. How about I write that book and sell it now? Here's the other thing, too. I don't think he had really thought this through because he absolutely would have been arrested if he writes that book. Like, it's not a great idea because he would have still probably been liable as an accomplice for a lot of it. Um, But this is what he pitches them. And so they start recording their versions of the story, specifically Bill, Emily, and Patricia. As part of this, Patricia drafts a lengthy statement fully aligned with the SLA to an extreme degree. And Bill and Emily aren't completely as sold because remember, they weren't fully on board with the SLA to begin with. It's only been a few weeks since they even joined and it's been this crazy whirlwind. And they're trying to tell their part of the story. But then on the other side, they've got Patricia who is just like 100 miles ahead, just like full speed, pro SLA and it's almost this idea of like what did we create like what did we do they don't like the way that these tapes are sounding they think Patricia's tape sounds kind of crazy they think her account sounds too extreme Uh, they don't like their accounts and the things that it's implicating them in so they destroy the tapes and it became obvious that the book would never actually be written And so Jack has a falling out with them, and now they're on the run again. So they reach back out to their friend Kathy, who helped them find this farmhouse in in the beginning. And Jack agrees to take Patricia as far as Las Vegas, but refuses to take her to California because they're very much fugitives. And he tells Bill and Emily to find their own way back. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Across the country. So, And it's been... 
six to seven months at this point, but people are still actively looking for them. So while they're driving back to Vegas in Iowa, Jack gets pulled over with Patty in the car, but she was disguised as a pregnant woman and she doesn't try to escape. But again, she is a fugitive. Like, that's the important thing to remember. A lot of people will be like, she could have escaped this time or this time or this time. And I'm like, A, she's a fugitive. She was at that bank robbery. They're looking for her too. B, as we mentioned, people in controlling organizations will continue to live normal lives where they could quote unquote escape and still don't. It is a powerful hold that these organizations have on people. And remember, she is 19 years old. Yeah. (laughs) She a teenager. So they leave her at a motel in Vegas for two days by herself. And she just waits there for Bill and Emily to get there. They do. Jim Kilgore picks her up and they all make their way to Sacramento. And now it's a new group. It's SLA Part Du Electric Boogaloo. So <laughs> I don't think you're allowed to use that anymore. I think that I has am. now become a terrorist thing. Well, well so have we're they. about terrorists. So you know what? <laughs> So now the group is Wendy Yoshimura, Kathy, Steve, and Josephine Salia, all siblings, Jim Kilgore, and they acquire a new guy named Mike Borton. Now, (laughs) within the documentary, Bill basically refers to Mike as a wild card. (laughs) What? (laughs) Which, for for these people to call you a wild card... It's crazy. Yeah, wait, hold on, wait a second. They didn't even call to to freeze a wild card, and he carried he carried around pipe bombs in his pocket. And they're like, he's a sensible leader. What does he have? Napalm in his pocket, just liquid dripping out everywhere he's going. What on earth could he be doing to be considered the wild card of this group? Well, he had something that Defreeze never would have dared to have, and that was a day job. (laughs) (laughs) Wild card. (laughs) health insurance wild card wild card so he and bill did not get along (laughs) and according to mike he's not a wild card didn't do anything was just helping to hide them and he says that he didn't agree with their ideology but he also disagreed with law enforcement killing their friends so he was willing to kind of let bygones be bygones now according to the sla patty hurst and steve salia develop a relationship I'm going to call this trauma bonding. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also possible that Patty felt like she needed people around her close to keep her safe, maybe. But they end up living together. So they have an apartment together as if nothing is wrong. They start living under assumed names. They rent apartments. They live fairly normal lives. The plan was for all of them to escape to Cuba. So they call a lawyer to try and go to Cuba legally because there is an embargo in place at this time. And the lawyer's just like, I'm not going to do shit for you people legally. Like, what are you thinking? <laughs> like, you you all have fake names. You all have fake identities. You've murdered a person. You've kidnapped a person. And you've robbed a bank. How? How am I supposed to legally help you do anything? 
I think it's really strange when they try to do things. They're like, we're going to do this the right way. We're going to pay the parking ticket. <laughs> yeah. We're going to call a lawyer. And you're like, why would you do that? <laughs> yeah, you just I, you just go to Mexico. And then from Mexico, you can go to Cuba. You don't have to worry about it. Why are they even? That's, it's, by the way, if they're, did they get back to the Bay Area? In this they're drive? in the Bay Area. They're in Sacramento at this point. Okay. So you're literally a one day drive from Mexico. You can get down right. there in nine hours. Go for yep. it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but during this time, and this is, Mike Borton has a lot to say about this time period because it's his first time encountering Patty, where he's like, I thought they kidnapped her, but she seems to just come and go as she pleases and lives in a separate apartment with this guy. Nobody's watching her. She's like going to the grocery store. Everything's fine. Essentially, he starts to think that maybe she's not a captive. And again, I will bring up what I mentioned about Scientologists a couple episodes ago. A lot of them do the same thing. They go live their lives until eventually they escape. Um, But there is something interesting to note about this time. She does express to Mike, according to him, a desire to leave and conflicting emotions about staying. And at one point expresses a desire to still be rescued, even though she is quote-unquote radicalized at this point yeah i mean well so like take a step back and ask yourself this how long would somebody have to lock you in a closet starve you threaten you with guns and keep you blindfolded consecutively before you were so scared that you developed a feeling that if you did not support these people you would die and that feeling might not necessarily follow the logical boundaries of your situation so that as soon as the person holding a gun to you is gone you're gonna just run away right like I don't know. I feel like five days in a closet. You might have broken me. Yeah. She was in there for 40 something days. It's, it's 58, 58 yeah. days. Yeah. yeah. And then even after she got out, she's still around a bunch of murderers who are talking openly about possibly killing her, et cetera, et cetera. So like, it, you know, that kind of trauma, especially at 19, yeah. think of yep. what that would do to a person. I mean, we, nobody bats an eye at the fact that, you know, we have veterans who come back from war and 30 years after they're out of the battlefield, a car will backfire and they'll jump to the ground because that's just in their head, right? It's not like they think to themselves, somebody's shooting at me. It's just a base instinct in them. And to some extent, that's what's happening to her too. Yeah. Hold on to that thought for when we get to the trial. <laughs> does somebody, does a car backfire? <laughs> no, but th- that's going to be very important. That mm. that idea of how soldiers react and compared mm. to how she has reacted. And I, I agree with you. I It would not have taken 58 days for me. <laughs> it would have been less. <laughs> Especially if we're talking like a Los Angeles closet, five minutes tops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's because there's like 14 famous actors in there. (laughs) 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 Anyway, so her mom goes on TV and reads a letter begging her to come home for Christmas. And she watches it on TV and doesn't go home and doesn't notify anybody. But again, again, she was kidnapped. It's traumatizing. The FBI is having a super hard time finding them. Because they're forging papers and living under assumed names. Nothing is digitized. Identities are forged. Police departments don't talk to each other. So they're just renting apartments and essentially starting over as like nameless, faceless, normal people. And for a long time, like a a six to nine month period, there's not a huge plan for more SLA stuff. They basically are just trying not to get caught. Are they like working jobs? Yes, in some cases, Whoa. yes. 
And they didn't count on one thing, and that was Wendy Yoshimura, because when the FBI raided the weapons cache, they found her fingerprints, which I know fingerprints are, are bullshit science. We know that now. They didn't know that at the time. I didn't know that now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the idea that no two people have fingerprints that are alike is actually not true. <gasps> Yeah, but so to some extent, it, to say bullshit, maybe not quite, but I, you, what yeah. you're saying is that what we've found before is that something that we consider distinctive isn't always necessarily distinctive, but in general still is. Like you still have right. a statistical likelihood that is well beyond and then you can get corroborating evidence and stuff like that. It's, it's, not, it's not the bite mark analysis. Let's put it that way. Bite, bite mark is mostly almost all bullshit. Fingerprints is mostly all almost good. It's just we've found that some of the things aren't as sure as we thought they were i would say fingerprints should never be your only evidence let's put it that yeah way. yeah yeah that that i've always been on board with but i didn't yeah i wow that's crazy you fingerprints can also be planted <gasps> so do they grow a person yeah. no, 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 but they, they're easy there you can transfer fingerprints anyway uh there is a lot of newer examinations of fingerprints and their veracity as far as evidence that shed some light on this. In this case, it turns out they are definitely her fingerprints. Yeah, yeah. So, get it. Uh, but they find a match to those fingerprints in a small farmhouse outside of Scranton, Pennsylvania. And you might be wondering, how did they find that farmhouse? That was their safe house. Nobody knew about it. Well, it's because Jack, the guy who helped them hide there, had a brother. His brother, Walter had a bit of an alcohol problem. And one day, he got rip shit on booze and just wandered into an FBI office and was like, I know a house where Patty Hearst was. And they raid that house. <laughs> yeah, and that that house, by the way, was the International House of Pancakes. <laughs> he just wanted somebody to pay for his meal. Now, in the documentary... Bill is like, we totally wiped down that entire house. We didn't leave any paper trails. Mm -hmm. But again, they are 0 for 7 on paper mm -hmm. trails. So, oh like, God. I don't fully believe him. There's a lot of things I don't fully believe him on. Yeah. The fingerprint they found was on a piece of newspaper inside a mattress. Now, I this would probably not hold up in court. But when they asked how the newspaper got there, they didn't find out until years later, but... How the newspaper got there is that Wendy was sleeping one night and there was a huge spider in her bed. And so they tear the room apart to try and find it. They flip the mattress, find a hole underneath. And thinking that's the only place the spider could hide, they shove it full of newspaper. That, that's not how you kill a spider. That's how you make a well-read spider. The spider, <laughs> right. the spider is just up to date on current affairs and Marmaduke. I like how their public persona is like, yeah, join the revolution. We'll fight the man to the bitter end. We'll die like our comrades. And then in real life, they're like, oh, my God, a spider. <laughs> because, again, theater kids with guns. Yeah. <laughs> so now after finding this fingerprint, they consider Wendy and Patricia's case to be joined. And in part, it's because they had totally stopped trying to find Patty at that point. She'd been gone for more than a year. And while she had started with 104 FBI agents looking for her, now she's down to four. There's four people looking for Patricia Hurst. Right Do they now. even know for sure she's alive at this point? Is she still yes. sending out communiques? And she sent out that one, but that's the last one they've heard, and it's a year since then. Okay. 
the documentary actually refers to it as the lost year because nothing happens really in that year. But now the FBI has something to go on. So they start to pull records related to both cases to try and find friends in common with both of them. And they see that Wendy knows the Celia siblings who had visited Wendy's boyfriend in prison. But also Wendy had visited her boyfriend in prison, which like Wendy is a fugitive and she straight up walked into a prison wrote her actual name down and people were like yeah normal visit like no one arrests her she's wanted in like it's crazy she has been on the run for a year plus and they're just like oh yeah she can come see it it's bonkers so this like being allergic to bees and visiting a beehive what are you doing you idiot I mean, if you know that that law enforcement is going to be so incompetent to not keep track of it, I guess. I said this on the first episode, and and it's even more true now as we go through. If I could have lived back in the 1960s or 70s, I would be a goddamn supervillain because these (laughs) fucking authorities are completely incompetent. It is. This is so dumb. You can create a national headline federal case with 100 FBI agents, put your headquarters a block away from their place in a studio apartment, not get caught, move to LA, you know, get caught up in shootouts and stuff, still make your way out of there, and then just move to Sacramento. You're only like 90, 100 miles away from this epicenter of where all this happened, just living your life in an apartment for a year. Meanwhile, you're visiting prisons, writing your actual name. God, I would have fucking owned this town. (laughs) Yes. Now, back in San Francisco, because of Walter's drunken FBI visit, Jack and Mickey, the people who actually hid her, have no choice but to go public. Uh, And they publicly say that they won't be cooperating with the FBI, but who they do cooperate with is Rolling Stone magazine. And that article about the SLA becomes a lot of people's basis for the story at the time even though it's told from Jack's perspective, who was not there for all of it. So it's kind of an incomplete narrative, but people kind of take it as gospel. And the SLA considers this to be revenge for not wanting to do his book, but they're not really in a position to do anything about it. But here's the thing. Rolling Stone is a company, a private company, and the FBI just rolls on up and is just like, give us your notes. Who are you talking to? (laughs) And also, it's print media, which if there's one family that controls print media, it's the Hearsts. And so the FBI does get the notes for those stories. And in the process, they find out who their informants are. And so Randolph Hearst, who is Patricia's father, invites Jack and his wife to dinner. And they go. Now... Her mother is not there. It's just her father, Randolph. And he tells them that Patricia didn't like being a socialite, which we knew. We talked about that in the earlier episodes. And he's not surprised that she would get involved with an activist group. However, he does worry that the abduction and thinking that they've abandoned her would push her further into this than she would normally be willing to go. And he says that he was very angry with her mother for joining the UC Regents again and befriending Ronald Reagan. Because remember, Reagan threw their charity under the bus and Randolph first blames Reagan for it. He hates Reagan at this point. They are enemies. But his wife is like, 
buddy-buddy with Reagan. At this point, Jack and his wife are like, hey, to be honest with you, as we spent time with Patty and talked to her, it did seem like that was the case. And they think that her mom joining the Regents was kind of the last straw and that she really did get put in a position where she believed this was her best option. Now, they also describe him as a father who just wants his daughter back. Yeah, Liam Neeson type. (laughs) But he implies that her mom, not the same, that her mom is still mad, essentially, that she would allegedly join this group. Wait, but like so mad that she wouldn't want her back? Not that she wouldn't want her back, but that she would have some very specific demands upon her return. Hmm. Oh my gosh, we all we have all had a friend who's had just a mom that's a little too hardcore, but I don't know that any of my friends' moms, no matter how hardcore, would be like, yeah, 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 it's great, you got kidnapped, your boyfriend almost beat to death, you've been tortured and raped for months and months and months, but I need an apology before you're allowed out of your yes. captivity. Yes, and, and that's going to come into play later also. So meanwhile, in Sacramento, everyone's running out of money because they thought that they'd be able to subsist on donations again. Now that they're back in California, they're in contact with friends that know them, but the people supporting them don't have a lot of money. Yeah. And what money they have, a one-time donation, maybe, but consistent, what are you, I mean, I subscribe to your terrorist Patreon? Go fuck yourself. (laughs) So... They are subsisting on the money that Mike would get from painting houses, and sometimes they would join in to help him paint, do larger paint jobs. But this is why Mike clashed so hard with them, because he was bankrolling everybody on a regular-ass job, and they start discussing crime options again. Mike describes it as, it's almost like being revolutionaries was their dream, and crime is the day job to keep the dream alive. Oh my god. And Mike hates this. He's like, we have assumed names. You have apartments. Just get a damn job and stop plotting crimes in my basement. (laughs) (laughs) I like how he's emerging as the strict father figure this cult needed. (laughs) Only temporarily, though. Give it a minute. So they decide that they're going to rob another bank. But this time, they're not trying to make a splash in the news. They just need the money. So they find a bank with no electrical alarms a bank called Crocker Bank in Carmichael, California. And Mike steps in because he's been part of these plans the whole time and is just like, y'all ain't shit. You've never robbed banks well. You shouldn't be in charge of robbing banks. You shouldn't be doing this. I should be doing this. I know how to rob a bank. Oh, my God. (laughs) So they argue about who gets to go into the bank. And he wants it to basically just be all the guys get in, get out, smash and grab. But the SLA is like, no, we need to make a statement with our bank robbery. He's like, no one's going to know it happened. There's no cameras. There's no nothing. Just get the money. Yeah. But eventually the SLA wins out. And it's half women, half men that go. So it's Jim Kilgore, Mike... Emily Harris, Bill's wife, and Kathleen Celia. And Mike is mad about this because he's like, Emily and Kathy aren't bank robbers. Like, Jim and I are at least strong buff dudes. We can kind of, like, handle things that come our way. They weren't even at the original bank robbing that got y'all into this mess. Why are we sending them in? (laughs) 
just love the idea that he's like like an old guy at a GM plant in the 1970s. Like, back in my day, bank robbing was men's work and women <laughs> stayed home with the kids. So April 21st, 1975. Just to highlight how bad they are at bank robbing, they get there before the bank opened and waited outside for the staff to get there. <laughs> you fucking idiots! What are you doing? You don't want to make the bank wait on you to rob. If you make the robbing appointment, you show up first. Oh my God. Right. And so the bank tellers arrive, assuming that they're opening the bank for normal customers because it feels like any other day. One of the tellers, Myrna Opsal, was carrying a large adding machine. And so as soon as they got inside, they start the robbery. And they're like, everybody put your hands up. And Myrna tries to set the adding machine down so that she can put her hands up. But in doing so, she startles Emily. And Emily, theater kid with a gun, doesn't realize that the safety on her shotgun is oh off. Oh, my God. Oh, no. She accidentally discharges. And again, this is according to her. It was an accident. She discharges the gun, shooting Myrna. And now everyone freaks out. And to avoid another accidental discharge, they start, instead of turning their guns where they can shoot people, they just start pistol whipping people instead and then cocking the guns near people's heads while their faces are down to make them think that they'll shoot them too. Oh my God, they're doing like movie moves. Yes, because they are theater kids with guns who don't know what they're doing and shouldn't be robbing a bank. Speaking of not knowing what you're doing, just just a message to all you out there, whether you're going to go to a a firing range or, you know, handle a firearm or rob a bank, whatever you're doing. Two words. Bobby? Bobby? Be careful. <laughs> trigger discipline. All right, you never keep your finger on the trigger of a weapon. You don't put your finger on the trigger of a weapon until you want to shoot it. So you shouldn't matter if your safety's off because your finger's outside the trigger guard. This is this is just this is poor planning. I'm I mean, it's also they shouldn't be robbing a fucking bank. L- like let's <laughs> Maybe. Just, Paige, don't rob banks. Paige, be careful. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. They also end up beating and pistol whipping a pregnant woman in the bank and she loses the baby as a result. Oh, no. They smash and grab the money and run. As they leave, Myrna, the woman who was shot, is bleeding out on the floor of the bank and the other tellers run to find towels to try and stop the bleeding as the ambulance is coming to get her. She's rushed to the hospital and then they leave the bank tellers to clean up her blood off the floor. Oh, my God. She's taken to a hospital. It happens to be the hospital where her husband is working as a surgeon. So he attempts to resuscitate her for as long as they allow him to do so before she is declared dead on arrival. Oh, my God. She was a mother of four. Oh, fuck, man. That's the saddest thing I've heard all day. It's it's a real bummer, and she does not get justice until far later, unfortunately. And even then, it is justice air quotes, yeah. if that makes yeah. sense. Trigger discipline. But also, don't rob fucking banks. Don't shoot people. That's easy, easy. Just rob a couple banks. But with trigger With discipline. trigger discipline. With Nerf guns. <laughs> so here's the problem for both the SLA and now Patty. 
Because Patty wasn't in the bank. She was a getaway driver. Specifically, she was driving what's called the switch car. So she's driving the car where if they get followed in one car, they can get out of that car and get into her car and then Uh continue on. Mm -hmm. But that makes her an accomplice. And any accomplices in a felony crime that results in a murder are also responsible for that murder, Mm -hmm. including Patty driving the switch car. So despite the fact that they just murdered a woman in cold blood, they continue. And according to Patty's testimony later, much later, when she asked about the woman who'd been shot, the response was, she was a bourgeois pig, who cares? Oh, dear. Yes. Which is brutal. That is a horrible thing to say about an innocent person that you just gunned down in cold blood. They all go to San Francisco. And they all kind of start trying to live normal lives in their apartments again. But the group decides it's time to get back to their original passion, revolution. And so they decide to go back to the SLA's roots, making bombs. Because it turns out the FBI was right. And Wendy was fully making bombs and knew how to make bombs. Now, a little bit of clarification at this point. Bombings used to be way more common, but not in the way that we think of them today. When we think of bombs, we think of like 9-11 level events. These are much smaller bombs that take out like a garage or a car. Uh, And bombings were so frequent in the 1970s, it's on not quite the scale of mass shooting events now, but that's kind of the equivalent of like, and, and this is super depressing and sad, but like if I woke up tomorrow and they were like another mass shooting event in X city, I'd be like, sounds about right. And if yeah. you in the 70s woke up and were like, somebody detonated a bomb in this one city, I'd be like, yeah, sounds about right. It was happening that frequently. Yeah, because that was before, I think, the Federal Register to buy things like dynamite and stuff. It used to be able to just go get it. And so you could do that. You could do ammonia fertilizer stuff. All of that stuff was totally untraceable, (laughs) kind of like guns are now. And so you could just kind of you could put that together. Nowadays, you would have a pretty hard time. I mean, I think you buy a little bit extra ammonia uh, for your fertilizer and you're going to be on somebody's watch list. And you certainly can't just like walk into a specialty store and buy dynamite anymore without a license. You keep saying this license thing. What kind of license do I need? Is that like a special driver's license? It's like demo construction guys. Oh. The guys who blow apart rocks and stuff, they need it. That makes sense. And you have to be be licensed to use explosives, and even then you can only have a certain amount. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have to like keep it registered and locked away, and somebody can come and ask you to come see it to make sure you aren't selling it to somebody else. Hmm. Yeah, and but that's all after this time. Yeah. So at this time, it's readily available. So Steve, Patricia, Bill, Emily, the Salias, and Wendy decide to start making pipe bombs. And they actually test them in their own backyard, causing a huge fire. Uh, Which brings the fire department to their house. And the fire department shows up and completely misses the fact that Patty is there. They just walk through and are just like, what's this fire? They put out the fire and then they just leave. (laughs) like no one is taken to jail for making bombs they're not even like how did this fire start bomb you should come with us nope they just put it out and leave so at one point they make a bomb and they send patty to deliver it and she goes to a police station and puts a bomb under a police car and no one 
notices the whole time she's at the police station. A fugitive. Like, a famous fugitive that has been on every newspaper. But she was bad at making bombs and it never went off, thankfully. They then tried to set off two bombs at the Marin County Courthouse. First under a cop car, then under a doorway. The car was supposed to go off first to drive people toward the building away from the parking lot, and then the doorway bomb was supposed to go off second to injure the people that had run from the car. It's a fucked up plan. It would have hurt a lot of people, but it was unsuccessful because they mixed up the timers and the bombs go off in the wrong order. So the doorway bomb goes off, then the car bomb goes off, so no one is hurt. I know it's it's like uh, kind of bad to bring up because these people are, are legitimately trying to kill a lot of people. But like almost everything they do sounds like it should be followed by that sad tuba noise like wah, wah, wah. <laughs> yeah. So then they decide they're going to move the operation back to L.A. temporarily and they want to specifically target cops and cop cars. But here's the thing. A car exploding doesn't just kill the person in the car. It kills anyone nearby. So, like, I understand not liking cops. I understand wanting to reform or get rid of policing as we know it today. But don't do it by murdering a bunch of innocent people. That's not good. (laughs) Like, that's bad. And their plan was they would wait for the cops to park somewhere. In this case, the main one where they are discovered... The IHOP on Sunset Boulevard. Oh, my God. The cops went in for breakfast. They put the bombs under their car. Now, the bomb detonation system was designed so that as the car pulled away, it would pull, essentially, the the trigger and set the car off. Their thinking was, quote, we only want to kill the cops. We want to make sure the car is in motion. And I'm like... That's even more dangerous because now it's a projectile. Like, what are you doing? But this fails because the trigger was made out of a clothespin and it just didn't quite align properly. So the bomb didn't go off because it was made badly. And if it had, it would have killed a fuck ton of people and pancakes (laughs) at that IHOP. Now, let me just say, by the way, this is a common tactic for, for uh, bomb triggers. And it's a, a technique I used to make devices out of when I was a, a kid. Not only, not, not necessarily just explosive devices. You could actually make a manual electric relay this way. But it's basically, if you think of a clothespin, how it, you know, it stays naturally, it stays shut, but then you can open it up. You basically just tinfoil the tips of this thing and you run your wire through there. So you have an open circuit when the thing is open and you have a little, you know, a stick or something that's propping it open that's attached to a string. String gets pulled out and it closes. It is so hard to fuck up making this. Like, this is a already complete bought-from-the-store trigger, essentially, electric trigger, that I, I'm i not even sure how you mess this up. Like, I, I don't know how badly you, how bad you are at building bombs that you fuck this part up. Because I, I, I probably made 200 of these type of improvised triggers. <laughs> I've never seen one not work. Uh, so I'll tell you how it didn't work. Instead of using tinfoil, they used screws. Oh, okay. And screwed the wire to the screws... So that when the clothespin was closed, the screws would touch and complete the circuit. When it was open, then they wouldn't touch and they would have a shim in there. The shim was attached to a wire, which was attached to a magnet. 
that magnet was attached to the bottom of the cop car. So when the cop car pulls away, it pulls the shim out, which then detonates the bomb. However, they're wooden clothespins. If you used enough clothespins, you know. If you buy cheap clothespins, they don't always close exactly. Sometimes they get off. That's what happened. They pulled the shim and the clothespin just didn't quite touch. They got very lucky that that did not go off. So, especially because it was a giant, giant pipe bomb. They were using three, four, and five diameter PVC pipe. Mm -hmm. Literally filled with nails. It would have killed dozens of people. Wow. And again, this is the part where people are like, Patty is helping to do this. Or at least that is the appearance. She is helping to place these bombs. She's helping to make these bombs. And thankfully, they're not going off the way they planned them. So people aren't getting killed. But if they had gone to plan, yeah, a lot of people would have been killed. Yeah, they're a not getting lot. killed because of incompetence, not because of benevolence. I right. think this is like a good place to mention this, which is, you know, obviously this is a, a separate issue from Patty, who, as we talked about, was essentially a POW. So, like, take her out of this. But when you're talking about all these people who joined voluntarily... There's an interesting thing that's been reported a bunch in the science literature in the past couple of decades, which is that there are certain jobs or certain things that sociopaths and psychopaths are drawn to. And a lot of times there are positions of power. They actually do really well as surgeons because they don't, they don't really care if you die or not. And they can just got to keep their cool and stuff like that. Um, but one of them is activists. So like there is a much higher percentage of sociopaths and psychopaths who are in the top tier of activist groups. And it's because it kind of leaves you as being untouchable. It's like, you know, it's like being Cosby, right? Nobody's going to accuse you of rape, even if you do it 50 times, because you're America's dad. And so you have this cover. And that happens a lot with, with like, groups. And so when you're hearing people, you know, who murdered a poor woman who was just at work one day saying, who cares? She's, you know, a bourgeoisie. It's like, she was a fucking bank teller, okay? She's she's not she exactly... She's a person. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and and you hear that attitude or you see Donald... De- Donald DeFries was absolutely a sociopath. When you see all of that, like, that co- total disregard for life, absolutely, like, not taking any uh, responsibility for what you're doing or for the mistakes that are being made... What you're probably seeing is that natural selection for those people. And the fir- the more extreme you go, the more likely you are to have, you know, sociopaths and psychopaths in those positions. And so it's kind of counterintuitive because we think of activists like, oh, these people are trying to do the right thing. And it's like, yes, yeah, some of them are. And then some of them are they, they have no care, no empathy for other human beings. And they see this as a position of power and an ability to affect other people and hold power over other people. And it's really, really attractive to them. So ironically, if you are talking to a leader of like a civil rights uh, movement or uh, actually almost any kind of movement, any kind of activist movement, you are much more likely to be talking to a sociopath or a psychopath. Huh. Well, and that goes for any movement. That goes for yeah. KKK. Yes, that goes 100%. for everybody. But also, it's more, it's this idea that the cause is more important than any people that yes. you would hurt along the way. The ends justify yes. the means. Absolutely. And that's kind of where they're at. And in the documentary, Bill says he wasn't involved in any of the bombings or making of the bombs. He says that he and Emily weren't involved. I don't believe him, especially because of some stuff we find out later. But that's where I would probably place him at a certain point. Um, not so much Emily. And I'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about her trial. 
But that's where this group is at this point, is that they actively want to hurt law enforcement so bad, Mm -hmm. they don't care how many innocent people they kill in the process. Yeah. But now, the FBI and LAPD and Berkeley PD are like, um, hey, tons of bombs. Uh, Who's the one fugitive that has bomb knowledge? Wendy Yoshimura. So they start looking for her. And they find a woman that they think might know Wendy. A woman named Patricia Jean McCarthy. And they start tailing her. And they eventually follow her to an apartment building where literally the entire SLA is there. Because they're painting the apartments with Mike. Because Mike is like, god damn it. I can't be the only one making money in this house. And they didn't get a lot of money from that bank robbery. So they follow all of them back to their respective houses. But the police want to be cautious because they don't want another shootout. They don't want to kill a bunch of people. They don't want to burn down houses again. So they take down the address of the first house, which is 625 Morse Street in San Francisco. And they call to see if anyone has reported anything weird on the street. And they find out that 625 Morse was stealing power. So defrauding the electricity company. Mm -hmm. But still, the FBI hangs back and just starts following the people who come and go from each apartment. And they follow Bill to the laundromat. And they literally walk into the laundromat like a full-on FBI suit. And Bill looks at him and is like, that's a cop. (laughs) So he goes home and is like, Emily, we got to go and we got to go now. Don't even bother packing your shit. So the next morning, he and Emily go outside as if they're going to jog and they are actually leaving. They're not they are not telling anyone else. They're just going to peace out. Unfortunately, the FBI is waiting for them. So they arrest them and they walk into the house and find an army's worth of guns and bombs. So as they're searching all of this stuff, the agents and there's only four of them. Two of them turn to the other two and are like, we should go over to that other house to make sure they don't warn them so we can catch everybody. So two agents go to the second house and the garage is open and there's a plumber there. So they ask the plumber if he has seen Patty Hearst and a number of other photos. And the plumber's like, yeah, that kind of looks like the girl's upstairs. So they go upstairs because the door is open And Patty and Wendy are just sitting at the kitchen table. (laughs) Patty goes for the guns. Wendy doesn't move fast enough. Patty surrenders. They arrest her and Wendy. And they find ass loads of guns. Would it be great if you had this tense standoff? You know, Patty goes for the gun. They're like, freeze, drop it, drop it. Oh, she, you know, it's tense. They, she puts her hands up. They're finally like, oh, it's all done. And they're, you know, put it on the handcuffs and stuff. And the plumber comes wandering up. He's like, uh, so who's supposed to pay me now? <laughs> well, about that. So Steve and Celia, who had been living with Patty, had just come from the other house where he saw the FBI agents outside and he wanted to come to this house to warn them. But he happens to pull up outside right as the FBI is arresting them. So he also gets arrested. Oh, my God. I bet the plumber was like, hey, I found the problem with your pipes. They're full of bombs. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, this is a, a major issue. 
you should eat more fiber. Quit yeah. blowing up this toilet. Absolutely. I love the idea that he pulls up when the cops are there, but he doesn't like think well enough to just keep driving. Like I think that happened to me once when we were like 19. We're throwing a keg party at my buddy's house, and I went out and got the keg, and I was driving back. And as I was pulling into his driveway, there were two uh, police cars in his driveway, and I just kept driving and pulled into the neighbor's driveway. Hell yeah. Keg in the back. <laughs> so... They're all escorted to jail. They don't find Jim, Mike, Kathy, or Josephine. Patty, as she's booked, lists her occupation as urban gorilla. And she actually is booked into prison, (laughs) along with the rest of them. And her parents, thrilled that they finally caught her, aren't fucking around, and they hire F. Lee Bailey. Uh And if you're not familiar with F. Lee Bailey, he was the defense attorney for the Boston Strangler, and O.J. Simpson. Ah, so uh, uh, very well versed in bone law, <laughs> which you're going to need in the court of Richard R. Boner, famous bone law judge, although he goes by Dick. Dick Bone. Uh, he's a very famous defense attorney, uh, and he has a very strong legal team along with him, mm-hmm. and they evaluate Patty, and they're like, Oh, she needs psychiatric intervention right effing now. And there are phone conversations from prison where she's like, I don't like the lawyers. They keep wanting to send me to, to shrinks and stuff. And they're like, yeah, for a reason. She hmm. does write letters to Steve and a couple other people. But pretty soon her lawyers cut off every contact she has with any other SLA member. They remove all direct contact and they make her undergo intense deprogramming because this is happening at the same time as our deprogramming episodes were happening in history wow so she undergoes really intense deprogramming and psychological treatment and very quickly she seems to return to the woman that she seemed to be before the kidnapping and the sla members are like you brainwashed her back into being a bourgeois pig (laughs) Not that we would have as we kidnapped her or anything, but they accuse the psych- the psychiatrist and her lawyers of brainwashing her. They, they're treating it like her brain is a, is the flag and capture the flag. They're yeah. like, all right, we got it. Now you got it away from we us. We'll it. get it back. Oh my God, these people are so stupid. Her phone conversations change and the bulk of her psychological and medical records are admitted into evidence for the hearing because they are going for a defense of coercive persuasion which is essentially legalese for brainwashing. But this becomes a problematic defense because she robbed banks and tried to set off bombs. So they bring in three different doctors. One of them is a man named Dr. Robert Lifton, who studied prisoners of war and soldiers coming back from war and how that affects them long term. But the argument is still made that the robbing and the bombings go above and beyond. Right around the same time, there's a case in Sweden, which will probably get its own episode, but it's the origination of what we call Stockholm Syndrome, where there is a bank robbery and the hostages in that bank robbery begin identifying with their captors, and they use this as a defense. But Bill and the SLA deny any brainwashing, despite the fact that they fucking kidnapped her. And forced her to read literature while, like, otherwise she was blindfolded and starved. And assembling guns in an apartment full of guns and everything. So F. Lee Bailey is like, enough is enough. And he puts Patricia on the stand. 
and she details the 58 days she spent in the closet. She describes in detail being raped by both Willie Wolf and Donald DeFreeze. Now, her captors are like, no, she loved Willie. They don't deny Donald DeFreeze. Oh. Now, they, they're like, I don't think he raped her. I didn't see it happen. But they, they don't really have a defense for that one. But for Willie, they're like, no, no, no. They went on to have a relationship later. And people get raped by people they love a lot. All the time. I, I don't think, even if they did have a consensual relationship, I don't consider that evidence against him raping her. And also, the quote-unquote relationship they had was a matter of days and starts with him essentially having sex with her in, in a situation in which she is a captive. Yes, we talked about this before. It's, there is, yeah. You can't say consensual because there's no consent to be given when you, are, when you literally have a gun to your head. Yeah, and same with Donald DeFreeze. And she gives very descriptive detail of what happens. And the court the prosecution argues that because she did not physically resist that it was consensual oh that's some 1970s shit right there yes and people are split on it later on in interviews later in her life she talks about using sex as a way to prolong her life while in captivity thinking that at least if i have some sort of use or benefit to these people they won't kill me um now Bill and Emily Harris launch a counter strategy because they don't like the implication that they would have let her be raped because, quote, they're feminists. And I'm like, but you let that relationship happen. Like, right. You don't. There's no consent when she is a captive. Like, what are you talking about? By the way, aren't you also the feminists who just murdered a bank teller? Yeah. Thank you. And kidnapped a woman. Anyway, so they give the prosecution, some information, and and not just them. They they do uh, an interview that reveals some information about the necklace that Willie Wolf gave her that was found on her person when she was taken into custody. And they use the argument that no woman would carry a token of a rapist, which I think is bullshit. I think people do all kinds of crazy things. I think people latch on to items in weird ways. I think... She is still with the group that is how she got that token. And maybe she thinks that they will check to see if she has it. Who knows? Um, But because she is testified and they get into the weeds on whether her rape is quote unquote legitimate or not. She ends up having to talk about the Carmichael robbery, which is the second robbery they do. And her defense thought that that case was going to be, or testimony about that case was going to be excluded from this case. And that's not the case. So she pleads the fifth for everything involving that case. The jury hates that because they think she's hiding something. Right. So they charge her guilty for the bank robbery. And she gets a seven-year jail sentence. But she is released on bail Pending her appeal. Her bail is set at $1 million. What? Yeah. At the time is one of the highest bail amounts ever set. Well, they were probably like, it's the hearse. It's the hearse. They can do the pocket change. Now, let me ask you. 
you said she got convicted for the bank robbery. There's obviously numerous other charges out there. Did she skate on those other charges? They were only trying her on separate trials. Okay. This is just the first trial for the initial bank robbery where she's caught on video. Okay. So she gets seven years, but they're trying to appeal it because obviously she was fucking kidnapped and shit. Right. Um, now, the media spins this as her trying to buy herself out of prison. And Bill and Emily join in on that narrative and give interviews to anyone who will listen about how she's essentially a spoiled brat trying to pay her way out of prison. Now, there are some additional pieces to her bail agreement. It stipulates that her family also had to pay to have her have round-the-clock protection so that she can't be kidnapped again And so that the SLA can't target her again. And they assign her an officer named Bernie Shaw. And they spend 24 hours a day together for months. So they end up having an affair. Oh, God. This looks bad. It looks real bad. Meanwhile, juries find Bill and Emily guilty of fucking everything. And they, even though they were not inside the bank for that robbery... They get minor charges and are asked to plead guilty to other charges. So they're asked to plead guilty to kidnapping Patty in exchange for counting some of their time served and so that there would not be a trial in which Patty would have to go to court again. Essentially, it's a play. People think the Hursts had a hand in it. It's a play to avoid having the second trial for the second robbery. Because she's already getting seven years. So they try every sort of option to appeal for a second trial. They remove the judge. They try to get trials moved. She agrees to immunity for some of the other uh, crimes, namely the second robbery, in exchange for providing information about the second robbery which actually gets Stephen, because they had caught up with Stephen Salia at that point and charged him with that robbery. She gets him acquitted, which is good. She tells them the complete truth. Like, it, it matches everyone else's story. She's honest about what happens. And the court doesn't believe her. And so they still don't allow this to be entered into evidence for her appeal, and her appeal fails. And so she is forced to basically report to prison in Pleasanton, California, which is a stone's throw from where I grew up, mm-hmm. to finish her sentence. And in the, in the interim, she gets new counsel. She never speaks to Effie Bailey again. There's like a rift uh, because she appeals for a new trial under the auspice of ineffective defense. So basically ineffective counsel which is the same if you ever followed the Adnan Syed case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was his petition as well. And it fails because the court is like, it's F. Lee Bailey. Man. Yeah, he's he's like a famous. <laughs> it's pretty hard to say this this guy didn't do a good enough job. He's not a good yeah. enough attorney. You're like, he's kind of like one of the most famous attorneys. Right. This is your best option. So then she and her family start to petition for a commutation of her sentence to basically credit her with time served and let her out of prison. And Ronald Reagan endorses it. Wow. It's, and she doesn't like that, but, you know, whatever, because he was kind of a dick while she was kidnapped. And it, it, it gains some traction, but it's not really, not really gaining a ton of steam until 1978, 
where something happens that really helps her appeal. And it's something we talked about in our deprogramming episodes as well. The Jonestown Massacre. Essentially what this does is proves to a lot of people that people who are in high control situations will do things that people would have never expected them to do to a fatal degree. And so Jimmy Carter commutes her sentence because of Jonestown. Because he's like, we didn't believe that you could have done, done the things that you did under a high control situation. But if these 900 people can do it, you clearly could have too. Though, again, that's kind of a part of a misnomer about what happened at Jonestown. Yeah, a lot it of was a mass did, murder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They did not choose to drink that. They were, they were forced to. Right. And this is, you know, they, people didn't fully know that, know right. that at the time. And anyway, so she gets out of prison. Her father and mother separate because her father is still mad at her mother for siding with Reagan. Good job. Like a Good job, Mr. Hurst. <laughs> yeah, they separate. Um, and all told from the time that she was kidnapped to her release from prison, five years have passed. Wow. So she essentially loses five years of her life to just like gone. She ends up writing an autobiography and writes about the robberies. Completely true, by the way. It, it, she lays out facts in that book. It's called Every Secret Thing. And the problem with that is immunity doesn't cover books. So she could have still been tried for the things that she talked about in that book, even though she had immunity. But they still don't prosecute that second robbery. In 1988, a film is released about her life. Uh, This is how she meets John Waters, which is something I would love to talk about in a speculation zone, but we don't have time to do it today. And everything kind of goes on as planned. She kind of becomes a movie star. She's married to that uh, policeman that she met as her security guard. They have two kids. She is a regular on the Westminster dog show circuit. (laughs) Like, okay, she goes on to live the life that everyone kind of expected her to live. Until 1999, when L.A. Major Case gets a tip on a woman that might be Kathleen Celia. And it turns out that it was her. They then quickly found Jim Kilgore. The two of them had been fugitives for 24 years. And they're charged with both the IHOP bomb uh, and the police station bombings. And now they're going to open up the second case. Now, specifically, she's arrested in Minnesota because someone found her doing community theater. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Do we know what play it was? I don't know what play it was, but she ends up on America's Most Wanted and someone's like, I saw her on stage last week. Yeah, she used it as a credit. That was the problem. (laughs) Um, So the trial for Myrna Opsahl's murder is finally going to happen. Bill is arrested again. But by then, he had served time, gotten out of prison, divorced Emily because Emily had come out of the closet and now had a partner of her own. And Bill has a whole second family where this has, like, not been a part of his life. He became a private investigator. Wow. You need, like, a license. You need to put, like, fingerprints in. There's, like, a bunch of background stuff for PIs. Yep. Mm -hmm. And he did it under his own name because he'd been out of prison long enough. That's how long it has been since this has happened. And there's a rumor that Patty Hearst is going to be a witness, but she actually chooses not to testify. She doesn't want to go back to court. 
All of the SLA members plead guilty as part of a plea bargain for some reduced sentencing. Nobody gets a full murder sentence for this one. Mm -hmm. But as a part of the trial, Emily does admit guilt and gives a genuine statement of remorse and talks about how being out of the SLA really caused the death of Myrna Opsal to weigh very heavily on her mm. and makes a very long apology to the family. It's very sad, unfortunately, but like I almost everyone that's not included in the documentary, which is like Emily, Kathleen, most of the women of the SLA, their actions later on really suggest that they also regretted being there yeah. and that there may have been a level of control to their involvement in the organization as well, um, at least under DeFreeze and then later. Mm. And none of them wanted to participate in the documentary. And none of them have really, Emily at least more recently has not come out against Patty. Bill still does. It's a whole thing. They they serve a handful of years, depending on, on what they were tried for. Both Emily and Kathy are now out of prison and choose not to speak publicly about the case, mm-hmm. both having allegedly regretted their involvement with the SLA, except for Emily making that apology and, and statements as well. The same goes for Jim Kilgore. He also chooses not to participate in a lot of documentaries and things about the case. Wendy also does not participate, but she did serve six months for explosives <laughs> back in the day. Um, Stephen, Stephen Salia actually painted houses until he died in 2013. So he wow. like went straight and just had like a regular job. And Russ Little, if you remember Russ from like episode two, he was convicted originally for shooting Marcus Foster and then his conviction was overturned in 81. Um, he has also declined to speak and has lived a quiet life with his family ever since. Yeah, they adopted a mouse. Stuart. <laughs> Stuart Little. Uh, <laughs> Joe, Joe Romero uh, was up for parole in 2019, uh, but has been repeatedly denied parole. I'm not sure why he's the only one that doesn't really get out, but uh, Patricia and Bernard Shaw, the, the officer who was tasked with being her security stayed married until his death in 2013 wow they have two daughters and she also declines to be interviewed for this documentary although she publicly speaks about the case often and has written books about it um but that's where we'll leave off and i understand that there's a conflicting there's some conflict between the things that patty does and how much of that is under her control or not. Um, and why I typically compare it to Marty Rathburn, as I said earlier, Marty's another person who was in a controlling situation, did some bad shit, but now on the other side has kind of come out and been like, I should not have done that bad shit. Mm-hmm. Patty has kind of done the same. And I think that's why people are still a little conflicted because Patty talks about the case and the facts of the case. And then when people are like, so why did you do those things? She's like, I was fucking kidnapped. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think people think that maybe there's not enough remorse there. Um, but I think for for Patty, it comes down to, like in Marty Rathburn's case, he joined Scientology. He chose to do it. 
not only did he choose to do it, but, you know, you could argue about, you know, sometimes he's in gold base and he can't leave or something. But, right, right, but right. he has opportunities after he chooses to then leave as well for some period of time. Whereas she had no initial choice. And that first period of months, she has absolutely no autonomy. Can't even decide, you know, like when she's going to eat or when she can see or get out of a closet or right. anything like that. And so... Like I was fucking kidnapped is actually the right answer to why yeah. you, why were you doing these things or and it could even be like why did you make this bad choice? You could be like you're right, it was a bad choice not to drive away outside of that sporting goods store. Also, I, I was, was fucking, fucking kidnapped. kidnapped. The problem is, is that she uses it for everything. Where like her husband was like, Patty, why didn't you do the dishes? And he was like, I was <laughs> fucking kidnapped, Brian, or whatever his name is. I forgot. And then she yell and then she yells at him. I hate traffic cops. Screw you. <laughs> Fuck all you drive. There is a comment that Jeffrey Tubin makes in the documentary that, you know, those memes where it's like, you're so close to getting the point yeah. where he says, yeah, is it a reality that if they would have never kidnapped her, she would have never done these things? Sure. And I'm like, that's where the sentence should stop. Yeah. Because <laughs> right. like, that that is it. Like, that's why. And I think that's why she is maybe not as what people would expect someone to be openly remorseful for someone who has committed crimes. I think she's very matter of fact about her involvement and that rubs people the wrong way. And I think for her, it's because she was kidnapped and she's like, I didn't choose to be there. You know, I, I stayed after a while because I was kidnapped and it messes with your head. And then I underwent fucking tons of psychiatric you know deprogramming to come out of it but yeah and so think about that a kidnapping victim served time yeah it's kind for, of for things done after her kidnapping it kind of brings up like this interesting question as to when we hold people accountable for their actions right so yeah. like let's say theoretically they stay on the lamb for 20 years instead of getting caught in that apartment you know if she is openly killing people in 1986 yeah. i'm sure most people would probably be like all right we get it that you were kidnapped but there's a problem here right. and nobody probably even her like the worst critics are going to blame her for anything that happened while she was tied up in that closet right and it's right. just that in between where we have to draw the line of like well when do you become culpable for the things you do even if really horrible things have happened to you right. and you're you know it's, it's changed your mindset when do we decide that you should have like I don't know, gotten your shit together. And like, that's a right. really hard question. Like, I don't know that anybody has that answer. Especially when like you are both being brainwashed, but also through the actions of your parents, understanding that you are almost not even welcome home. Yeah. Yes. There, there is a point at which she does not believe she's welcome home. And also she is being repeatedly sexually assaulted. Yeah. Right. That is a way to break someone down quickly. Yeah. And I'm like really glad that that those bombs that she did plant did not end up killing anybody because me too. And, and neither did any of the stray bullets that she fired at like the sporting goods store or anything, right? Like so, right. So there wasn't actually lives lost due to her direct actions. You could argue about you know uh, other bombings mm -hmm. that she might have been part of, but like due to her direct actions. Uh, and if there was, then obviously there would be a, another really hard question to answer. Yeah. Like, do you then hold her accountable? And maybe maybe you do. But the fact of the matter is, she 
there was some luck involved and some incompetence in terms of clothespin triggers. And uh, they were not able to, they did not end up hurting those people, thankfully. But man, I, I guess that's a funny question to ask yourself is like, at what point would you personally start holding her liable? You know, yeah. like, is it somewhere in 79? You know, is it, does it depend yeah. on how many people get killed or what her autonomy is? What if she starts her own group and she becomes the next to freeze? Like, you know, yeah. we we talked about how horrible Charles Manson's childhood was. Nobody's holding a 14-year-old Charles Manson accountable for, like, roughing up a kid in a schoolyard. Your life is so horrible. Like, there's something really wrong here. But we can all look at a 50-year-old Manson in jail with a stupid swastika forehead tattoo and be like, fuck you. Yeah. At what point do we start holding Bobby accountable for the crimes he <laughs> could have committed had he been born back then? Oh, my God. I would have. You wouldn't have been able to hold me accountable. I would have owned this place. <laughs> Oh, Jesus Christ. Well, I've been trying, I've been racking my brain trying to figure out what production Kathy would have been in. And I'm going, you know what? I'm going Chicago. I think they were doing, (laughs) I think they were doing a local rendition of Chicago. And they were like, wow, she really understands what it's like to be a criminal. That's crazy. And she she had kids and a family of her own at that point that she then goes to prison for like seven years and then comes back to them as well. Wow. Yeah. She come yeah. back to the theater? No, I don't know. Oh, well, I don't know. I just imagine at some point her husband is like sitting there as they're putting cuffs on her and he's like, 25 years we were fucking free and I told you not to do this goddamn play. <laughs> you said you had to let your spirit fly, you dumb bitch. We could be free. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us, Bobby. Uh, Bobby, you have been a, an amazing guest. You guys have been amazing hosts. This has been fantastic. I don't think I've had this much fun on a podcast uh, since our own Shinrikyo episode. So thank you guys for having me. Oh, You're welcome. Yeah, that's a, another series that Bobby was able to guest on for, for one episode. Also as an explosives expert uh, who criticized them for doing crimes wrong. A very yes. strange take that Bobby takes time and time again. If I was around in Japan in the 1950s, <laughs> I would have owned that shit. Uh, if you like Bobby, which honestly, who doesn't? You got to go check out Science Faction. Science Faction is a really fun podcast that Bobby does. Uh, tell them all about it. Uh, we take the weekly published science articles from major journals, so all the stuff that all those academics are reading, and then we tell fun j- dick jokes about them uh, so that you can actually enjoy it. And we have our regular Science Faction weekly episode that comes out uh, usually Tuesday or Wednesdays, and then we have an extra Patreon episode uh, called I Call BS where we cover four more science articles. So you can make yourself quite scientifically literate just by licky- listening to dick jokes every single week. You almost said just like licking dick jokes. Just by licking Garth Cumming. <laughs> you can... <laughs> Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, this episode is brought to you by Greg Bustnud, professor <laughs> of bone law. Do you need to bone up before your big dick trial? Come to Greg Nuts for a fucking... I don't even know. I just like saying Greg Nut now. Uh, thank you for joining us, Bobby. Uh, if you want to find more of myself, uh, you can uh, go follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Mondo Does Stuff. M-A-N-D-O Does Stuff. Uh, I also do stuff with Funhouse over at Rooster Teeth. You can come check out the podcast. We're live every Tuesday. Uh, and then the podcasts go up on Thursdays on YouTube, Spotify, uh, iTunes, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. This last one from this uh, this past week, which I guess is last week now as we're covering this, 
super fun because I talk about how a guy in my house owns a monkey and an alligator and apparently has owned a monkey and an alligator for months and they just found out about it. And so there's some changes going on in everyone's leases. And I think that's very funny. Um, also this comes out on Monday. So if you're listening to this on Monday, you want to see me do a roast battle. I'll be at the comedy store tomorrow on Tuesday. Come check it out. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, find more info on my Instagram, which again is Mondo does stuff. That's M A N D O does stuff. I love you. Goodbye. Hey guys, it's your girl. I'm here every week. I've been yelling for four weeks straight. Um, if you want to follow me on social media, you can do so at page Wesley on Twitter or at rampage Wesley on Instagram. Uh, mutiny magazine with my comic in it is out. You can purchase it on fairsquarecomics.com. Uh, Or if you did one of the pre-orders or pre-backers, you should be getting your copies in the next week or so. Uh, So enjoy that. Uh, Also, I will be roast battling at the Comedy Store August 3rd. So you can watch that live at the Comedy Store if you're in Los Angeles, although tickets tend to sell out almost immediately. Or if you can't get tickets, you can watch it live on Mint Comedy. And I love you. Thank you. Yeah, and if you want uh, to support us and what we do, you can go to patreon.com slash cultpodcast. Uh, you can also support us by going and listening to us on Rooster Teeth. Cock-a-doodle-doo! Yeah! <laughs> Thank you, Bob. My cat just looked at me weird. Yeah, because you're making you're fucking speaking the language of the enemy to your cat. <laughs> Uh, Rooster Teeth is a great place to find a bunch of really fun content like uh, uh, podcasts like Good Morning from Hell, Black Box Down, Red Web. Uh, also, ours is there, which is the whole reason we're promoting it. You can also find fun content uh, coming soon, September 9th, Last Laugh Season 2, which I am a guest on. Yeah. So much fun. Had a blast. Can't wait for you guys to watch that. Also, go check out Camp Betrayal on there now with a friend of the show, Charlotte McGrath. Also, Blaine's on it. Blaine and Barb, both on it as well. Uh, First episode is up on Rooster Teeth now. Go check that out. Go to roosterteeth.com or you can download the app uh, on your Amazon Fire Stick, your Roku television, your Xbox, your mobile device. Bunch of really fun stuff. Go check it out. Roosterteeth.com. If you want to follow the show, you can do so on Instagram at Colt Podcast. Or on Twitter at Colt Podcast Show. You can also send us an email to coltpodcastshow at gmail.com. And if you want to send us anything that's not a pipe bomb. A degree in bone law, baby! <laughs> yeah, send us degrees in bone law. You can send those to 3756 West Avenue 40, Suite K, number 237. Like, like the shining the shining los angeles california 90065 and i think for this one i'm gonna say don't drink anything that goes in a bomb that will kill you <laughs> i think oh but i wanted a healthy glass of nails don't do it i'm still gonna and do it and don't drink the kool-aid bye bye, bye.